COVID-19 has torn at the fabric of our higher education institutions. But were the threads of that fabric already wearing thin? And if the pandemic has exposed existing flaws, how can we use this opportunity to remake the system so that it's better suited for now and into the future? Welcome to The New Social Contract, a podcast that examines how the relationship between universities, the state and the public might be reshaped as we live through the age of coronavirus. I'm Tamsin Peach, your host and a historian at the University of Technology, Sydney. This is the second episode of The New Social Contract, and in this episode, we'll be tackling the context of the crisis. What are the challenges and how did we get here? This is a vital industry, uh, important all across the country, important to the future of the nation, and it really is facing very significant threat now and attention must be paid. But before we get started, if you've just discovered this pod, welcome. I'm so glad you found us. And can I just make one tiny suggestion, which is to maybe go back to episode one and start from the beginning. The series will make more sense that way. In that first episode of The New Social Contract, we did one of my favourite things. We looked back to help us look forward. We discussed how the social contract for universities has taken many shapes throughout the 20th century and how those shifts can tell us a lot about what might be possible at a time when the social contract seems set to change again. So head back to episode one if you haven't listened to it already. I'll be waiting here when you get back. Okay, all caught up, then let's get going. In this episode, I want to try to figure out how we got here. And no, not the thing about whether someone ate a bat or a pangolin. I want to look at how Australian higher education has become so exposed. To look at the vulnerabilities in the system and the decisions that have led us to this point. To help me do that, I'm speaking with... I'm Tim Dodd, Higher Education Editor at The Australian. So where are you joining us from today, Tim? I'm at home at my desk. I've been here for the last five and a half weeks. It's a different way of working. It sure is. And I'll also be speaking with Willem Croucher. I'm an academic and researcher in the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education. I'm recording from a very warm study in a very wet Melbourne. First up, we're hearing from Tim Dodd. Tim, thanks for joining me today on the New Social Contract podcast. For those in the university space, Tim's name will ring a bell. You would have seen it in black and white on the byline of a national broadsheet. Tim is the higher education editor for The Australian. And in 2014, he was named Higher Education Journalist of the Year by the National Press Club. So it's great that you're with us, Tim. Thank you, Tamsin. I'm very pleased to be here. I wanted to talk to you because we're trying to work out the context of the crisis that the higher education sector in Australia is experiencing right now. What do you think the greatest vulnerabilities are that have emerged in the higher education sector since COVID-19 erupted into our lives? The clearest one is the vulnerability to an interruption in the international student market. Now, universities, of course, have thought that that may happen and their critics have warned about it now for the last four or five years because of the immense reliance on international student income. But nobody, I think even the severest critics of universities, ever expected that it would happen as suddenly and dramatically as it has. We've seen a plunge in university income. Universities Australia thinks that all universities will be down by as much as $4.6 billion this year. I think it could even be more than that. And it carries on into following years as well, because if you're reliant on income from international students, when they enrol, of course, they're going to stay for two or three years. So if students aren't coming, that has an effect over the next two to three years. 
And with the uncertainty as to when international travel will be able to resume, that puts universities in a pretty invidious spot. How did this reliance on international student fee revenue come about? In part, it's an accident of history. We have an English-speaking country. We have a good university system by world standards, and we are near Asia, where there has been a massive rise in incomes, a growing middle class, and these people wanted their children to be educated. It goes back to a decision which John Dawkins made as Education Minister in the mid-1980s when he decided that the universities could educate international students and keep the fees. And they discovered what really was a magic money-making machine. You could bring in international students and this would pay for more research, particularly in the group of eight universities, which in turn led to a rise in the rankings, which then attracted more international students. So it was a way to bring in far more revenue than they had access to in the past and it was a virtuous circle for a long time. And it meant that Australian universities have been able to afford way more in research than in the past. They've been able to hire top researchers from overseas. But as we can see now, there was a weakness in this circle. It's now extremely exposed and our universities are going to look very different in the future. Okay, so I'm going to bring Gwilym Croucher in here now. Gwil's research focus is on the funding, financing and history of universities. Will, what does COVID-19 reveal about the settlements that universities and the state have come to across the last few decades? The pandemic has revealed that you know, governments have really bought the argument that universities are engines of human capital in advanced economies. This means that they are the, the prime way that workforces can be skilled uh, and the main way that you know, countries can increase and sustain economic growth over time. The pandemic has shown that universities really are at the heart of the science state that's developed in many countries since the Second World War. They train the scientists, they provide the advice and the keepers of the expertise that governments have relied on when dealing with the immediate effects of the pandemic, but also when they're starting to think about what recovery is going to look like. So how is COVID-19 magnifying existing pressures in Australia's higher education sector? There is likely going to be less international students into the future coming to Australia to undertake study. There will be less funding available from all sources. As we know, Australian universities rely heavily on the Australian government to fund their teaching and research, and clearly governments will have less money available as they deal with the economic fallout from the pandemic. But universities also rely on funds from philanthropy, from industry, and directly from student fees. All of these sources are likely in the future to be diminished. One pressure that the pandemic is definitely placing on universities is a shift in the types of degrees that students prefer. As the economy in many countries become significantly less predictable for students as they enter the labour market, or indeed when they go back to universities to upskill, then preference for degrees that are seen to you know, provide employment, so professional degrees, will likely increase, whereas those that it's less clear what the employment path is following study um, will likely diminish. One of the existing pressures that the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is magnifying 
is regard to online education. The pandemic will likely force a reckoning with online education in many places around the world. The promise in the 1990s that universities would be able to shift a lot of their teaching online has in some ways gone largely unfulfilled. Okay, so traditionally university education has been delivered face-to-face on campus and has equipped students with all sorts of things, friends and networks and cultural capital and a whole lot of citizenship building, as well as really the immense privilege of three years to think and learn with other people of your age group. Online education is a whole different ballgame. So I asked Tim Dodd what he thinks about its prospects. We have indeed had online education now for a while, and it has not yet taken over. When MOOCs appeared on the scene in 2012, people, including myself, thought this is going to be a major change and a challenge for universities. Now, universities are still there, and a lot of people say, well, MOOCs weren't all that they were cracked up to be. And the other interesting thing is that in China, which is now a major source of international students, and in fact, because of its large population, it's got a, a major proportion of students worldwide. Even though they are doing everything online in China now, they don't do university education online until COVID-19. Now, for the first time, Chinese students have had to do university-level study online. And will this change something? In the past, there's been a very well-ingrained cultural expectation in China that if you're going to go to university, that involves being in a classroom and listening to a lecturer who was out the front of a class. The idea that you would want to go overseas to Australia or another country and learn might be far less attractive than in the past. But international students have not just helped fund Australian universities. They've injected energy and life into our cities, our communities and the wider economy and society. Last year, international education earned $40 billion worth of export revenue. And most of this was not in university fees. Most of this went into a larger economy. So it's responsible for about a quarter of a million jobs. They rent accommodation, they buy food, they pay for all of their living expenses. So that's a massive economic boost which won't be there if they disappear, which is a reason why the government needs to do everything it can to keep this industry going if it can. What could the government do concretely now to maximise that benefit? We have to be welcoming of international students and value the ones who are here now. Now, international students, when they come to Australia, they are required to have enough money to support themselves in the first year. But after that, we allow them to do part-time work of up to 40 hours a fortnight. And they do do part-time work. And now, so many of them have lost their jobs because they work in restaurants, they work in areas which have collapsed as the economy has closed down under the impact of the coronavirus. And these students now have got no means to support themselves or to pay their fees in many cases. So as this is a temporary crisis, governments really have to step forward and say, we'll support students through this. It's the right thing to do from a humanitarian perspective, but it also, from a business point of view, I think it's a no-brainer. So the big question is, Will students really want an online education? I would think that what students would be happy with is if they can learn the skills which they need for a career as cheaply as possible. I think they would appreciate paying less 
or tertiary education. This is where the growing importance of online education comes in because it potentially is far cheaper. And also it's improving as well. Recently, students would have been online in their classes because of COVID-19. These were hastily developed pieces of online education. There would have been a lot of reading PDFs and a lot of talking on Zoom. Online education is developing. It will soon have a high-level production And that, I think, will make online education more attractive, both in the fact that it'll be more effective and when used at scale, it'll be cheaper. I don't think that means the end of the campus. I think that school leavers in particular still want to go to campus and socialise with their peers. But it does mean that universities will have to change a lot. And these changes are already taking place. One area that might see change coming is research. Universities create public benefit through research. So how has it been funded? I ask Will Croucher. Part of the success of the Australian research effort has really been that it has been funded from a number of different sources. One of these sources has been part of the fees that international students pay for their education in Australia. It's certainly one of the reasons that a lot of students have come from overseas to Australia is because of our research effort. And so the lights have been very happy to do this. As we have less international students come in the future and therefore less fees that they pay, this presents a real problem for research effort in many universities. While universities receive a huge amount of money from the Australian government for research through the Australian Research Council and the National Health and Medical Research Council, A lot of this is for specific programs, whereas the funds that are provided by uh, other sources, such as from international student fees or indeed from philanthropy, give universities a lot more discretion with where they are able to pursue particular research agendas. They're able to fund projects that they perhaps their academics couldn't get funded through the ARC or the NHMRC. And this could present a real problem for a number of universities and their research efforts. The pandemic is magnifying a key pressure that many Australian researchers feel in terms of where to find research funding. Governments in Australia and indeed overseas, which do provide significant research funds to Australian researchers, will have less money in their budgets and therefore there'll be less funds available. Governments will also have a different preference for the kind of research they want to fund. And this is exacerbating a, a long argument in Australia and other places around the world about how much blue sky or fundamental research should be funded. But haven't Australian universities done very well in the research rankings? I asked Tim how the funding system we had in place at Australian universities has informed the type of research that they've done. I think this is part of a rather complex picture here in trying to analyse what's occurred. Obviously, this access to a larger stream of income had a positive side, but also it's put universities in a position where they are slaves to the international rankings. These are the lists which are produced times higher education by QS and by the Chinese Shanghai ranking, which mean that you have to get research published in high-ranking international journals. And that means that there is, I think, a less emphasis on research about Australia. And it also means that universities put a huge amount of effort in working out how to look as good as they can in these rankings. Um, what might that funding landscape 
look like? Right now, I don't think there's much more money that universities can expect from government. The federal government is not well disposed to offering higher funding to universities. And secondly, it's going to have a lot of other demands on the budget in future years and major deficits, which makes me think that we are going to see more online education, which is offered at mass scale. And these changes aren't easy to make because obviously it involves a loss of jobs. And they're very hard to make these changes in normal times. But we're now in crisis times. And if anything, this is when we'll see changes of this nature, which will be extremely disruptive. Like many, Tim Dodd seems to be predicting disruption with an emphasis on skills training. So what does COVID-19 mean for the education workforce? I asked Gwil Croucher what he thought. Since the 1990s, universities in Australia have employed a significant number of casual staff. The current pandemic presents a real problem for how universities are going to manage their workforces as they face the prospect of reduced revenue. One of the ways that they will be able to reduce their outlays is clearly by reducing the number of casual staff they have. This will present a huge problem, obviously, for many of these casual staff as they lose employment. But in the longer term, it will potentially de-skill a lot of the Australian academic workforce. If people are out of the system for a year or two, they will naturally find employment somewhere else. And we may face a situation in Australia where to solve the short-term problem of university budgets being diminished, we lose a lot of great You're saying that because people are such a major part of how universities deliver value, you can't turn the tap of labour on and off. The role of people in universities is particularly important because they embody significant expertise which is built up over years and is often particular to disciplines and even in particular to the way that institutions do things. If we de-skill the academic workforce, it's very hard to replace. Uh, You noted that one senior regional university vice-chancellor said that Australia has too many universities for its population, too many campuses, and too much duplication of too many trying to do the same thing. Is oversupply one of the vulnerabilities of the higher education sector in Australia now? Australia doesn't necessarily have too many universities. What Australia does have is large universities by world standards. So part of the question in terms of oversupply is, do we have the optimal sized universities? Are they in the optimal places? What's the decision we want to make in the future about whether it's important to support small institutions in regional areas so that people are able to find education close to their homes? Or do we want to promote you know, central hub institutions, which is largely what Australia has done, where there is a number of big institutions in the big cities. There's not necessarily a right answer to this, uh, but one thing is for sure, the more institutions you have, the more duplication you're going to have in terms of the way that they have to operate their administration and just indeed their facilities. So there are genuine costs in having more institutions. Having said that, there are also advantages. And these are often costs that we may well want to bear uh, to get those advantages. Students don't necessarily have to travel as far, which is important. We can also build greater diversity in the way that institutions operate. We can build greater diversity in the focus of different institutions, which can be extremely important um, so that we don't have a one-size-fits-all model. 
One model of education that you might have heard discussed is micro-credentialing. They're essentially short courses, most of which are directed at skills acquisition or certification. One thing that came out of the crisis is that Education Minister Dan Tian has now authorised short six-month courses, which will be offered between now and the end of the year. And many universities are climbing on board and offering these courses, which I think are likely in the long term to change things. I asked Tim if he thought Dantian's micro-credentials would exacerbate a trend that was already in existence. We had a report last year which Dantian had commissioned shortly after he became minister 18 months ago, which was called the Review into the Australian Qualifications Framework. And among its recommendations was to make it easier to um, have short courses which were accredited. That's part of the reason why he's encouraged universities to offer short courses now to train people who are currently out of work. I mean, what this all adds up to is a kind of really radical change to the Australian model of higher education, in which training for professional qualifications has happened, as you said, in three or four or five-year blocks, and then work happened after that. That's an enormous change to the structure of higher education in Australia. I think you've put your finger on something really interesting. It is true that the backbone of universities has been this perhaps unspoken contract with business and the professions whereby universities train people in courses which are accredited by professional groups such as lawyers and accountants and engineers and computer scientists and so forth so that people emerge with a credential that is accredited and move on into the workforce. And most of the training in universities is for courses like that. Now, if the model changes and you spend your time working more on the job to move into these professions, well, that really does change the role of universities. The one thing universities are not anymore is the elite. I mean, I think the other thing about Australia is that Universities have always been seen by governments and to a large extent by the population as a signalling device for the middle classes, and that's problematic. Why is it problematic? Well, it's problematic in a number of different ways. It really diminishes its roles in producing skills. It diminishes its role in furthering debate and fostering the generation of new knowledge. All these things get subsumed under its key social signalling role. The other thing it does is it undermines its uh, political capital. So when governments face tough times and indeed really difficult public policy choices, it can make it a lot easier for them to turn their backs on universities because they're not seen as critical in the same way as other uh, levels of education are and indeed uh, other forms of post-secondary education. These are unprecedented times, as we keep hearing, but this isn't the first time that Australian universities have seen their international student market fall away. I asked Tim Dodd about this. Australia suffered a major shock in its international student market between 2009 and 2011. You know, that was the time of the global financial crisis, but Indian enrolments halved at Australian universities during that period. And many Australian universities lost 60% of their Indian enrolment in a single year. And the overall, the slow recovery meant that Australian universities missed out on what was at the time judged $1.3 billion in tuition fees. Did universities learn 
anything in government? Did did they learn anything from this uh, international student market crash in 2009? That was 10 years ago now. Yes, and part of what drove that was, as you mentioned, it was the global financial crisis. And also there were a series of attacks on Indian students in Melbourne, which had a major effect in India and wide publicity. But after that, things did recover. And since about 2012 onwards, we've seen the boom in international students that uh, has gone on growing until now. What did we learn from that? Um, Not as much as we might have. I guess what was not learned was the point that it is a volatile market and it can crash. Nobody expected the crash to be of this magnitude. It was thought more likely that we might lose international students because of an economic recession in China or the fact that the Chinese government for geopolitical reasons decided to turn off the tap. But it's come much more suddenly than was ever expected. Universities and the Australian government really heeded the message that came from the 2010 reduction in the number of Indian students coming to Australia. All universities and the government put in a huge effort to try and restore confidence with these students, and indeed they did come back. But what it does demonstrate is that there is only so much influence that Australian universities and the Australian government can exert on the international student market. Much of it depends on factors well outside their control. So, for example, the Australian dollar and what that means in terms of the relative cost of Australian international education plays a huge factor. How international media present Australia is something that is largely outside our control. The global financial crisis uh, had a very similar impact for many institutions as the reduction in Indian students' enrolments had in 2010. The financial crisis caused some institutions to rethink how they were relying on income from different sources and also to reorganise so that they could better deal with such a shock. So why are we left so vulnerable now then? The pandemic, because it affects pretty well every aspect of economy and society at the moment, has really hit universities from a number of different angles. Whereas universities are quite resilient and potentially able to deal with uh, one or two shocks. So for example, if there's a reduction in the number of domestic students coming they can scale down a bit. If there is a reduction in the number of international students coming, they can cope with that. Because there are so many shocks coming so quickly, uh, it puts them in a very difficult position. Universities talk a lot about their value to the economy and also their role as the providers of skills. But universities are not just about preparing young people for the workforce. How many of you fell in love for the first time at university? Why haven't we been hearing these type of stories? Universities are big and complicated federations, and that's part of the strength of them is that they have a lot of different people doing a lot of different things, but it can also at times present a real challenge in terms of the the narrative that they are able to present. Universities in Australia are perhaps not embedded in their local communities as they are in some other countries. So, for example, despite what you may think about U.S. college football, it does mean that, you know, many people in U.S. towns and cities who have no interest or desire to attend a university or college there, nonetheless feel a strong connection to their local institution. In Australia, the system has also created potentially some more distance 
that people feel from their institutions as well. And that, in many ways, raises the age-old question of what universities are for. Tim says it's simple. And the purpose actually is pretty obvious. It's to educate a population in a way that means that they are able to move into the jobs that are available. And if you look at the role of universities and other education providers in the tertiary sector, what we want as a nation is for them to be able to educate students well, the right standard, give them the skills which they need, and do it as cheaply as possible. There's no reason, for example, why basic qualification in a university, that's the bachelor degree, ought to be three years. Why ought people not, as a matter of course, study for either one year or two years? If things change, technology advances in their industry, and they need to learn more, or they can return to another year course or a six-month course. And this idea of continuing education over a lifetime is widely talked about, certainly talked about in universities. But it requires an effort by government to introduce the types of reforms that allow it to happen. That might be what can occur out of this crisis. Gwil, he has a more expansive view. Universities are extraordinary institutions. They have changed their purposes over time to meet the expectations of their communities, their governments, their students, and indeed their staff. And they've done this while also charting a course internally that follows the evidence, it follows knowledge, it follows what they do these days in terms of their research. And it is this ability to blend external expectations with internal narrative that has really become their strength. So it's a time when we're really reassessing and re-evaluating the role of higher education. Gwil, what do you think should be the priorities for universities? One of the key priorities for universities at the moment is to think about how they will position themselves in 10 years. After the immediate crisis has passed, there'll be an opportunity for reinvention, but also they'll face a very different international student market. They will face potentially a quite different domestic student market. Spitball here. What kind of universities does Australia need in the 21st century? What do we need? You know, as we face recovery from this, but also the challenges of the continuing ecological crisis. Australian universities have always managed to contribute to the social, intellectual, economic life of the country when they've been well run and on the front foot. Australian universities, as they go forward, will need to ensure that they maintain and to an extent recapture that role in leadership. Australia may need more, may need fewer universities, but what it certainly needs is universities that are financially viable, that have quality teaching, and that are recognised as being leaders around the world. Over the last 30 years, international student fee income has become crucial to the settlement between government, the Australian public, and their universities. It's enabled enormous growth in teaching and research. It's helped to revitalise our cities and it's created a generation of graduates throughout our region who have a story to tell about Australia. It has also come with increasing casualisation and an emphasis on rankings and all that entails. In many ways, this has meant that the question of the social contract for Australian universities has not had to be confronted. Until now.
Next time on The New Social Contract, we're going to explore what the crisis in higher education means for those on the ground. What are campuses without students? How are academics putting their teaching online for the first time? And how are those who came to Australia to study finding a way to live and learn in lockdown? I would really, really hope that things do go back to physical teaching and physically applied courses at the campus. But I suppose I won't hold my breath because I want things to be, you know, as safe for everyone as possible. So if it means having to wait longer, then maybe that's just how it'll have to be. But I would like to complete my final year of the class on campus, I reckon. If you would like to share your experience of university life during COVID, if you've got an idea for us or something you want discussed, we would love to hear from you. Please email us or even better, use your phone to record a voice memo and email it to impactstudios at uts.edu.au. We've put up instructions on our website showing you how to do this. And if you can, please feel free to leave a review or rate us on your podcatcher. Tell a friend about us on your next Zoom chat or tweet us at TNSCpod because this is a conversation we all need to be part of. Thank you to my guests, Tim Dodd, the Higher Education Editor at The Australian, and Willem Croucher, a Senior Lecturer in the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Melbourne. And the news grab you heard at the start of the podcast came from the head of the New South Wales Education Department, Mark Scott, speaking on the ABC Education in the Age of COVID Q&A special. You can find a link to it in our show notes. That's it from me. I'm Tamsin Peach, and I look forward to you joining me next time. The New Social Contract is a podcast series made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded.